Welcome to the Katie Halper Show. I recorded this episode Wednesday, March 11th on live radio at WBAI. I speak to Brianna Joy Gray, Bernie Sanders press secretary. She's also the host of the podcast Hear the Burn. And I speak to Rebecca Nagel, Cherokee writer and advocate. She is the host of the excellent podcast This Land. And Eugene Perrier. Please rate and review The Katie Halper Show on iTunes, and please become Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash The Katie Halper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash The Katie Halper Show. For $5 a month, you get entirely extra episodes. And if you just want to support the show, you can do that for as little as $1 a month. The Patreon-only episode for this week includes an interview I did with Jack Allison, co-host of the Struggle Session podcast and host of the Twitch show Jack AM. And it's about how an MSNBC reporter tried to take his cell phone from him when he filmed her and asked her about their decision not to cover the swastika that was unfurled at a Bernie Sanders rally. It also includes an interview I did with Vanessa B, who talks to me about her sternly worded letter to Elizabeth Warren supporters. Hello, everybody. Yes, indeed. This is the Katie Halper Show, and it is Wednesday. And you know where you can find the Katie Halper Show? Every Wednesday, 4 p.m. on WBAI. That's 99.5 FM or WBAI.org on the internets. And I'm here with a special guest. So happy to have him in studio, Eugene Perrier. Yep. But please tell me I pronounce you your name. It. You oh, got it. You got it. Yes. Usually people say Perrier. So Perrier. You're, you're oh, I like that. Yeah. The pack. Yeah. Um, Eugene Perrier, who is the author of Shackled and Chained, Mass Incarceration in Capitalist America. Also, uh, you describe yourself as a revolutionary lover of books. And you are the host of a new show, Breakthrough TV. Well, the news that breakthrough on Breakthrough News. So we're still okay. the news. workshopping got exactly it. how it should sound to sound cool. But you got it. Great. And you, up until this point, were uh, hosting your own Radio show? Yes. I yes, mean, up yes. until recently? Yeah, for about four years, I was doing a radio show, By Any Means Necessary, down in D.C. I'm new to New but York. But what was it called? DC. Get By it? By Any Means Necessary. Oh, <laughs> get it? Uh, right, I even right. used to do, for like a year, a show on WPFW. So I got my wow. start in the media world in the Pacifica Network. Wow. Well, uh, so exciting. And, uh, of course, we have in studio, man of M. O-E, man of engineering. Mm. I try to come up with a new name every uh, every ep- like every that. show. Reggie Johnson, how you doing? Hey, what's up? What's guys? up? <laughs> so we have a great show for you guys today. So excited, bringing on to talk. No big deal. Um, very soon, very shortly. Brianna Joy Gray. You may have heard of her. She may or may not be. Well, she is the uh, <laughs> press secretary of Bernie Sanders. And uh, she's going to give us a rundown of what's happening. And if people don't know, uh, the um, King St. Bernard, he did announce that he's sticking, staying in the race, staying which in. is yeah. amazing. Uh, I knew he would. Of course he would. Uh, just want to give him a shout out. Thank him for staying in. Suggest that he stop calling Joe Biden his friend. Um, <laughs> on behalf of everyone he's you know ever locked up, or all the uh, you know on behalf of Anita Hill. Anyway, you know where I'm coming from. But um, what did you think, by the way, before we call Bree on a Joy Gray? What did you think of last night's results? 
you know, and, and I think for many people, disappointing. Uh, I don't know if it was terribly surprising at this point. I mean, we're in sort of the post-ruling class consolidation era of the race where pretty much every single, I mean, they were just pulling people. I forgot Beto O'Rourke even existed two weeks ago. He endorsed Joe Biden. Cory Booker, Kamala Harris just before the Michigan, or the mini Tuesday Michigan, Washington, Idaho, what we saw. So, I, you know, I mean, I think that what we are seeing, and there's a range of things that we can talk about that I'm sure we'll get into over the hour, but at the end of the day, that sort of this primary terrain is so heavily controlled not only by like the quote unquote establishment in terms of the ability to shape the conversation, to shape the issue of momentum, but also just in terms of the rhythm of the traditional institutions of the Democratic Party turnout machine to be able to create the you know outcomes to a certain degree the way they'd like to see them. So I think, you know, also though I will say we saw yet again, whatever the result be in terms of where the votes went, significant, I mean, 60% of people in Missouri want no private insurance, only government-run health insurance. I mean, the way that exit poll question is being asked might be one of the worst ways to ask it, but I think it's very revealing. And we're seeing so over and over again, whether it be free college, whether it be universal health care, uh, any range of issues, I think we are seeing that broadly, the themes that are associated with Bernie Sanders' campaign, certainly very popular among Democrats. So, uh, you know, I think it's a maybe a mixed bag in right. terms of, uh, you know, the actual result itself, but certainly I think strong, progressive uh, you know, messaging coming from the people who showed up to vote. Right. It's funny because the corporate media has a very different take on that. Um, what 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 was the most obnoxious, um, painful takeaway for you to hear from from the folks at MSNBC or CNN or? You know, I, I think it's actually been a continued takeaway since South Carolina. Yeah. This idea that, you know, the the black electorate is weighing in on behalf of Joe Biden and, you know, interjecting this theme of, of you know, moderate whatever. I mean, one, and, and to go back to the point I just made, I mean, you look at many, most of the states who voted, people's certainly when they're talking about issues don't seem that moderate. I mean, you want to replace all uh, government health. I think 73 percent of people in Tennessee, which is obviously a couple of weeks ago. But, you know, we could go on and on here. I think we saw something similar, a uh, high number in Mississippi, uh, also wanting universal health care, wanting free college for all. So, uh, you know, and then also, of course, how representative is anyone? I mean, you know, you look at a state like South Carolina, where this whole thing first started, and, you know, only about 21% of the voting age black population even voted in the primary. And I say voting age, not voting eligible, because remember, if you're a convicted felon in South Carolina, you could not vote. If you were a black undocumented person, you could not vote. So there's a number of, uh, I think, logical fallacies that have been introduced to do something which to me seems incredibly perverse, since the black liberation movement traditionally has always been the mainstay of certainly progressive, and I would certainly say radical movements in this country to create this whole new history now that the role of the black voter and the role of the black community in the election is, you know, re-injecting sanity and this crazy guy, Bernie Sanders, being sidelined and, you know, they're moderate voters giving a reality check. I mean, I think people are voting tactically based on what they believe. The other, I mean, I saw one minister say in, in one of these Southern states, I can't remember, he said, I know what white voters want more than they know. So he's not actually doing it based on what he believes but what he believes is possible and what he believes other people will accept. And I think those are important mm. conversations to have and to parse that and break it down. But it's a very different thing than like, oh, all these black voters are just right. hardcore conservatives. Sure. So you're saying that that person is saying 
white people won't vote for a socialist or vote for vote for a Jewish guy. Right. And that's See, why. Right. It okay, seems too it. radical, too out there. Right. Uh, so we can't. Right. Let's not take the risk. Right. And I think even that in and of itself has some fallacies in it. But I think it's a it's a very different way of yes. understanding than what we're seeing right. in the media. Got it. Yeah. That's a really good and interesting point. Do we have our first guest on the phone line? Oh, my gosh. So excited to speak to Brianna Joy Gray, Bernie Sanders press secretary. Hello. Hi, Hi how are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Good. Tell us what is happening. We really appreciate how busy you are, and we're so excited that you have the time to talk to us. I'm here with Eugene Perrier and Reggie Johnson. So, yes, please give us a dispatch. Where are you? What are you doing? What's the campaign doing? I'm at HQ in D.C., and look, the, the mood here is hopeful. The reality is that obviously last night didn't go as we wanted, but to the point we made in your earlier conversation— So many voters just haven't had exposure to what Bernie actually Mm. stands for at this stage in the race because we've had it clogged up with a number of candidates who suddenly disappeared overnight uh, just a little over a week ago. So that's why we are looking forward immensely to this debate on Sunday, which is going to be the first one-on-one debate of the campaign and the first time Joe Biden is actually going to have to run on what he's actually running on instead of this electability argument, which has been Mm -hmm. carrying through throughout and which in and of itself, isn't act accurate based on a number of metrics. Right. So um, what do you have to say to people who say uh, it's over, the country just isn't as progressive as we'd like to think it is? Um, that's what last night showed. Um, and, um, that what, and what are you going to do if Biden tries to get out of the debate, which I think he will? Well, the exit polls from every single state that has voted so far show that overwhelming majorities of Americans support Medicare for all. They support Bernie's platform. And this is what he was saying during his um, press event earlier today at one o'clock. You know, if a majority of Americans are saying they want $15 minimum wage, they want Medicare for all, they want a wealth tax on on the top percent of owners in this country, then what are they saying when they're voting for Joe Biden? Either... It's incumbent on us to communicate our message more effectively so that they know what Bernie Sanders stands for and that what we stand for aligns with their interests. And or we have to communicate our electability argument Mm. more, more um, persuasively. And that includes, one, understanding that our strength with Latino voters is is indispensable to winning a general election. You know, I remember when the rhetoric coming out of 2018 was all about how there were these new swing states in the southwest that the Democrats had to rely on now that the Midwestern industrial states were less reliable um, in a a kind of a Trumpian populist world. And that having strengths in states like Texas and Arizona and Colorado were what was actually going to make you electable in a general election context. And now we have Bernie Sanders, who is overwhelmingly securing the Latino vote, who had 70 percent of the Latino vote coming out of Nevada. And Joe Biden, who seems not to have made much of an effort at all to reach out to Latinos, holding himself as the person who's going to be most eligible in those states and across the country. You know, importantly, the Latino vote isn't as wedded um, historically to the Democratic Mm. Party. So there's not the same faith that you can have that they are going to just go along with who's ever at the top of the ticket. And that has significant down ballot implications as well. Um, And the other part of it is the youth vote which, you know, there's this kind of perverse rhetoric that says the youth vote isn't up. It is up. It's just bit that the boomer vote was driven up even more, potentially by there's some theory that um, Bloomberg ad spending made a lot of people who might not otherwise have been as exposed 
to the election, um, were inundated with ads about it. Those tended to be older cable news uh, viewers. And when Bloomberg dropped out of the race, those votes inured to Joe Biden's benefit. So what we have to do now is encourage the youth and not let them get distracted and recognize that when we say youth, we really just mean all voters under 50, which is what Bernie Sanders is winning at this point, to realize that if we, if we truly believe in climate change and that we have to act in, um, with the kind of alacrity that, uh, you know, the IPCC says we need to, if we understand that the F minus grade given to Joe Biden by, um, uh, you know, these youth climate groups actually matters, then it is incumbent on us to keep pushing and keep fighting because this is far, far from over. More than half of the states haven't voted yet. There's so many delegates on the table, and we're pushing through and really optimistic about what's going to happen when the, the country finally gets to see who Joe Biden is and what he stands for on Sunday. Um, and what are you going to do to make sure that Biden does not try to get out of the debate or turn it into, I know the DNC has already turned this into or trying to turn it into a town hall. I mean, I'm waiting for Biden to suggest like a, you know, sitting down in a hot tub or like a kiddie pool or, uh, you know, a sauna, portable well, sauna. Very comfortable in pools. That's I know like you're his, right. That's his they, yeah, they could sit on lifeguard chairs where he, head, yeah, the yeah, his golden hairs, Joe Biden and his golden hairs. Jump in his lap. He yeah. Well, look, <laughs> I think part of what you saw in today's press conference was that Bernie is laying out the territory that he hopes to be covered during the debate. And if Joe Biden fails to respond, he, it's going to look as though he's intentionally running away from all of these important issues that, again, majorities of Democrats align behind in his um, failure to show up. Right. So it won't just be that he's not coming to the debate. It's that he's not responding to Bernie's question of what he's going to do about the 500,000 people who go bankrupt from medically related debt. You know, what is he going to do about the fact that his health care plan leaves 10 million people uninsured by design? You know, what is he going to do about the fact that climate scientists say we only have seven or eight years to radically transform our economy or else the planet is going to go to a point of, of no return? You know, and so he's going to have to face the fact that he's running away from those specific legitimate questions, questions that, by the way, have been legitimized and validated by a surprising number of kind of more centrist political you know, figures in the, in the public sphere. Um, so he's going to have to be accountable. Yeah. Um, OK. And anything else you want to make sure people know about? Um, you want to make sure people wait on lines, do anything logistical that hasn't been getting out there? Or I heard this website was like they had a misleading website. What was going on with that? Anything you want to make just, sure people know? I yeah. want to make sure that, you know, this campaign is is famous for having the largest volunteer army and the not, largest number of small dollar donations in American presidential history. And I want people listening to, and who have participated in those efforts to know that the campaign is fighting tooth and nail, as, as the Warren gang say, leaving blood and teeth on the floor, um, and that they shouldn't stop getting on the dialer. They shouldn't stop knocking doors. They want us to feel demoralized. Yeah. They want us to feel like this is over, and it is by no stretch of the imagination over. We here in HQ are running on all cylinders. Bernie Sanders is running on all cylinders, and we really see this phase of the campaign as an opportunity to have a true one-on-one -on -one show off and to foreground all of Bernie's strengths and to illuminate the weaknesses that Joe Biden has been able to cover up, basically, because there is a has been a big field up until now. Right. 
Well, okay. Thank you so much. And um, yeah, people, I mean, I don't think this covers anyone listening to this show, but anyone who is, uh, you don't even have to love Bernie or hate uh, Biden to want to see them debate. This is just, this is democracy, right? You have to see people's ideas. You have to see how they handle questions, how they can respond to them and how they respond to each other. And uh, yeah, that's just, uh, so all these people, Jim Carville, big surprise, Mm. uh, he's usually so rational in everything Mm -hmm. from his choice of uh, sweatshirts, hats, and uh, whom he's married to. Um, No, I mean, disrespect, uh, uh, I understand marrying your ideological enemy probably has some kind of role play appeal to it. But um, his trying to end the primaries early is just absurd. And they, as once again, they they are ideologues pretending to be pragmatists. Even if he were to win, he would have to go toe to toe with with uh, Donald Trump. That's right. Yes, but uh, I'm not. I'm not accepting that future. Certainly, anything could happen. Yeah, anything <laughs> no, could I'm happen. Not. Yeah, especially <laughs> if Joe Joe keeps up cursing at people, poking them in the chest, and telling him to vote for other candidates. And that he will slap them in the face. Oh yeah, slap them in the face. Yeah, that's I, right. That's, God bless that's him. Another plug to support the independent media outlets like like yours that are actually covering these kinds of things. You. Jacobin, The Intercept, Current Affairs, and a lot of the media that's coming out of this campaign as well. I host a podcast uh, for the campaign called Hear the Burn. Oh, it's great. gone almost a year now without interruption of these episodes, so they're also a really great tool if you have people in your lives who are on the fence who want to know more about what Bernie Sanders actually stands for yes. and what Joe Biden doesn't stand for. Yes, exactly. Um, well, thank you again so much, Brianna Joy Gray. Where can people find out more about you and the campaign and... Uh, you know, BernieSanders.com. Um, there's also, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we put out a really great page explaining what all the pay-fors are, so there's no excuse there anymore. Um, the podcast is Here the Burn, available wherever you get podcasts. I'm at Joy on Twitter. That's free with an E, like the cheese. And, and yeah, we'll, we'll see you on Sunday. Great. Thanks so much, Bree. Thank you, Katie. Bye-bye. Bye. That was Brianna Joy Gray, press secretary for Senator Bernie Sanders, who is running for president of these very, uh, very United States. Well. Very, very upbeat, upbeat, as she should be, because she's part of this movement, the Not Me Us. Yeah, well, it speaks to the role the media plays in sort of reinforcing this yeah. feeling. It's over. you yeah. got to drop out. There shouldn't be any debates. And I, I think if you don't have any counter to that the sort yeah. of average person well i guess it's over you know yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, a self- it's like a basketball game prophecy. why would you oh. tune in during the third quarter if your friend just texted you oh our team is behind 20 points exactly so stop texting rachel maddow stop texting lawrence o'donnell <laughs> brian williams i don't even know what you're doing just I, i'd rather you text or play a video Getting game shot down in a helicopter shot, yeah exactly shot down a helicopter reading the tweets out loud of um <laughs> of this guy named horse whisperer who called brianna joy gray white adjacent bro fodder wow do you know that he read this I guy tweets out loud yeah these people uh don't even get me started on the bernie bro narrative we can read some tweets later on in the show i did a major thread on this i'm writing a piece on this brianna joy gray has gotten a lot of crap as a black Mm -hmm. woman she's called awful things and somehow the media that keeps pretending that snake emojis are why warren isn't endorsing sanders and if that's true i don't know which is worse i don't know if it's worse right i I think it's worse if it's true I, i mean if you're acting out of conviction and also acting out of any knowledge of the very small percentage of people that are on Twitter anyway. Like, let's just say every Bernie Sanders supporter on Twitter was a terrible human being. Yes. Uh, that would still be a very small percentage of his overall supporters. So if, if that's right. your, your basis, I don't know how you can say that I am a candidate of conviction. Right. I want to challenge concentrated yes. money and no capital. How, Biden yeah. would be dangerous if we nominated right. him. You think you would say, you know what, whatever I think about Bernie Sanders, whatever I think about his supporters, 
let me put shoulder to the wheel right, here exactly. and see if we can get something close to what Right, I'm how saying. shaky is your sense of justice if that is what determines whether or not you're going to endorse? And of course, we now have statistical evidence that this is a myth. The Bernie Brown narrative is a myth. There's no statistical evidence. In fact, all the supporters are equally toxic, but the media is invested in that narrative. We're going to speak to the amazing journalist, Rebecca Nagel. Are you there, Rebecca? Yes, thanks so much for having me. Yes, thanks for coming on. Um, Rebecca Nagel is a Cherokee writer, advocate, and language learner. She's the host of the This Land podcast at Crooked Media, and her bylines include Washington Post, Teen Vogue, and HuffPost, and you can find her on Twitter at Rebecca Nagel, which is um, Rebecca N-A-G-L-E. Thank you so much for calling in. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be on. Yeah, um, t- please tell us what you are up to right now. You have this amazing podcast. It's on hold, correct, while this case that you are uh, covering, which is really fascinating, uh, is also at a kind of standstill. Um, but wanted to know what your thoughts are on the election. Also, congratulations, you just got a, a prize and you're giving some talk. So tell people what you're up to. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot going on. Um, So, yeah, if people are interested in the podcast, This Land, um, it covers a Supreme Court case that's going to have a really big impact on treaty and land rights here in Oklahoma. Um, It started with a small town murder in the late 90s and turned into a Supreme Court battle over um, treaty rights and native lands here in the state. Um, and there's a lot to it. Like my own family history um, is part of it. Um, we talk about other uh, attacks happening right now in the courts and on Native rights. Um, and so it's an eight series uh, season. And we're getting ready to do some update episodes. So oh, good. Um, the case was actually decided uh, last year by the Supreme Court. And then in an even wilder turn of events, the Supreme Court granted um, cert or decided to hear a second case kind of about the same question about whether or not um, uh, the reservation of a tribe here in Oklahoma, Muskogee Creek Nation, still exists. And so we're going to hear their oral arguments for that case, hopefully at the end of April, and then hopefully have a decision by June. So there'll be some update episodes coming out this spring um, covering those next steps. Great. And uh, it's a really great podcast, and it's so interesting hearing about not only what's happening today and not only kind of the, the legal history, but also about your family, Major Ridge, um, uh, your really interesting relatives. Uh, so just want to thank you for that podcast and also encourage everyone to listen to it. It's really just really riveting. Um and what about you? Um, you're giving a talk this week. You want to tell people about the talks that you're giving and what you'll be exploring? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so I gave a talk last night at a local university here where I live in Tahlequah, Oklahoma. Um, I talked about Native representation in mainstream media and the importance of Indigenous storytelling. And then I also talked about this case um, what was called the Murphy case, and now that the Supreme Court is sort of taking up this reservation issue, but with a different case, uh, is now called McGirt. Um, and so, yeah, that was the topic. And then I'm actually, um, Friday night, I'm going to speak at, there's an event in, um, it's a run uh in Stillwater, Oklahoma, which is kind of in the middle of the state, uh, that was called the Land Run for years, um, which refers to a time when the government opened up Native land, and basically there was a land run where white people could come and, like, stake down a flag 
and lay claim to that land. And so it's something that is really celebrated within the state of Oklahoma. So like OU, like Sooners, Boomers, like all that stuff, like you see kind of homage to land run all over. But of course, it's this history where the flip side of that is that it was really based in um, dispossessing Native people of our land. And so um, uh, the run, which used to be called the land run, actually changed its name this year. And so I'm going to speak um, at one of the promotional events for the run to sort of like explain some of the background about why, which I'm really excited about. So that's kind of an awesome example of people um, taking in feedback and um, deciding to make change. Great. And what about um, what do you want people to know about the uh, native vote and what's happening with that? Yeah. So, um, you know, there is a lot at stake in this election, I think, for every um, group of people in the United States. I think particularly, as we've seen in the Trump administration, every vulnerable group and Native Americans are um, no exception to that. You know, um, Trump has done things like roll back the process of putting trust in land for tribes has actually been the first administration since President Truman to take land out of trust. Um, There's some really troubling language coming from the Trump administration about Native Americans um, not being a political group, but being a racial group, which kind of undermines the legal foundation of um, our treaty rights and the trust responsibilities that the United States government has to our tribes. And so, you know, everything from minimize, um, from diminishing the Bears Ears Monument to greenlighting the, green the Dakota Access Pipeline, um, there's a lot on the line um, in the election in 2020. And I think one thing that gets overlooked a lot of times, I think people think that because Native Americans are a small portion of the population, we're not a vote that they need to earn or spend time on. But actually, um, Native people are a critical part of the population especially in some swing swing states Mm. so when you know we look at like arizona um that's a place that has a really high native population um and a lot of native voters are reliably democratic and so i think it's really important for the democratic party when it thinks about what is our strategy to win in 2020 that getting out the native vote and making sure that native people have access to the polls is part of that plan and what do you um what makes you support bernie sanders Yeah, I mean, I think I'm like a lot of other Sanders supporters where it's about the policy and I believe in his policy agenda and I trust him to enact it because he has stood for the same things his entire political career and has been fighting um, for these issues, you know, since before I was born. Um, You know, I think if I had to vote on one issue in this election, it would be climate change. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that we have to um, have a sober and clear look at what the science tells us. And what the science tells us is that a return to the way that things were, a return to even, you know, the Paris Climate Accord isn't enough to prevent some of the disastrous impacts of climate change that are already happening, right? And so I think that we're in a generational moment where either we make bold policy change, where we restructure our economy, we make a just transition to renewable energy, or, you know, in a decade, less than a decade, it's going to be too late. Um, And so for me, when I think about um, you know, the options that are left in the Democratic primary, that that's an issue that holds a lot of sway for me. 
And what about um, the relationship between Bernie Sanders and um, Native Americans? Uh, it seems like there's it's slightly unique. Um, I mean, even just in terms of rhetoric, um, they I mean, this group of people are frequently left out, just not counted at all. Um, not even referred to, not even pandered to through language. Right. Um, right. So, what what are your thoughts on that? And can you tell listeners about um, how you see him on that area? Yeah, I mean, I would say one thing about Sanders is that, in addition to having a strong policy platform and strong positions on Native issues, he's shown up for our community. You know, he's one of the only people who ran in this primary that, when Standing Rock was going on took a public position and he, you know, he used the public platform and the name recognition and the national recognition that he had at that time from campaigning for president to really push this issue forward on the national stage. Um, and so I think that he has that relationship with um, Native communities and a lot of progressive Natives because we've seen him show up, you know. Right. Um, and then I think that, you know, the language that he has, you know, I mean, almost every candidate, even Republican candidates, will have language about the United States honoring treaties um, and fulfilling its trust relationship to Native Americans. Um, but that's kind of the bare minimum. You know, that's right. actually like that's, that's actually just what the government is actually like legally required to sure. do according to the Constitution. Um, and so it's kind of a low bar. And I, I think what I see and Sanders' platform um, is really fundamentally reshaping that relationship between the federal government and tribes that for a really long time has been a paternal relationship where instead of the resources that are guaranteed to us by treaties actually being fulfilled, you know, we're having to go to IHS, we're having to go to the Administration for Native Americans, we're having to go to all of these um, monies that should be owed to us because of our treaties and having to compete with each other over um, fractions of what should actually, what the treaty obligation should be fulfilled as. And so um, I think the idea of resetting that relationship um, to one based in equality rather than paternalism is the thing about the Sanders campaign that I'm most excited about. Right. I think that would be a game changer. Um, in the relationship between the federal government and tribes. Yeah. Uh, and I'm here with Eugene Perrier, who um, is a host of the News on the Breakthrough, news, on Breakthrough yeah. news and also Breakthrough former host. Media, of maybe we did a former host. We'll of, uh, right. I mean, that's We're going to get a really slick uh, tagline in yeah. here relatively soon. But uh, certainly people can can check us out at uh, BT Newsroom on all social media. But, yeah, I mean, I think the points you're making, Rebecca, are, are, are so important. I mean, I, I think that, you know, similar things could be said and I think have been said uh, about Muslim American people, certainly from the Latino community. And it, I think it speaks to something a little bit deeper, too, um, as well. Like, why is there such a need to insist that the Sanders movement has some sort of overwhelming whiteness when there's just like no real facts on the ground. Even if you hate the yeah, guy, I mean, this right. is just basic facts, lay it out there. And I think it does speak to from the, you know, quote unquote establishment. And I know now all of these terms that are obviously real and obviously exist are being called into to question by many. Right. Um, but, you know, from the quote unquote establishment, this sort of, you know, almost preternatural need to say like, it's only white people, it's only Bernie bros, to me speaks to a certain power that exists in people, one, saying they're about 
about ideas, not a person, and two, saying that we're willing to, I mean, what's the, the, the phrase, the not only the not me us, but willing to fight for someone you don't know. Right. I mean, I think those are powerful concepts far and beyond, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders as a person or even electoral movements that I think are scary to many of the power brokers who are, mm-hmm. are now consolidating behind Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think when we talk about the Rainbow Coalition on the left, you know, I think Jesse Jackson's like historic run for president is, you know, the person who kind of brought that to electoral politics in a real way. Um, and I think that it's I think for us to enact any of the policy changes that we want, whether whether it's Medicare for all, whether it's a Green New Deal, whether it's a living wage, whether it's. Um, you know, college being accessible and having like K through 16 education, um, public education in the United States. Um, None of that is going to happen by electing one person. Like all of that is going to happen through building a broad base of coalition that includes a multiracial voting block that includes young people, old people, urban people, rural people, progressive people, moderate people. You know, I mean, to push those policies through Congress, we're going to need um, we're going to need that broad base. And I think that what's been exciting about the last two election cycles is just to see where the conversation is at, you know, because we weren't having these conversations um, even in the 2008 election cycle about these big, bold, progressive ideas. And so I think that um, and, and I think that Sanders actually deserves a lot of credit um, you know, he hasn't done it solely, but I think his campaigns have really reshaped the Democratic Party, and in my opinion, for the better. Yeah. Yeah. I I'm- mean, 60% of people in Mississippi supporting universal government run health insurance doesn't sound like a super conservative electorate. Right. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I mean, a, the, a big narrative that is uh, undermined by the people I'm speaking with and uh, also I'm in the studio with is this, you know, toxic Bernie bro narrative, white, stra- straight white male Bernie bro narrative, which, of course, erases so many people. And something um, that is really has been infuriating me is how that has been used as a kind of cudgel and a way to delegitimize an entire movement which includes people of color, LGBTQ people, um, undocumented people, and, of course, um, totally ignores all the the online toxicity that is lobbed at anyone who supports Sanders. I mean, also, there was a, there was a, um, a swastika unfurled right. at a rally, a Bernie Sanders rally. Right. That barely made the headlines. Barely made yeah. the headlines. After Bernie was accused of being a Nazi. After Bernie was compared, he's been compared to Nazis by on multiple occasions. Yeah. MSNBC, yeah. And the brown shirts be yeah, and the, the brown shirts brown reference. Shirts. Yeah, we've got digital brown shirts reference from Chuck Todd. We got Chris ha- uh, Chris Matthews comparing him in Nevada to the rise of uh, you know invasion the, of the yeah, Nazis. The fall of France. Yeah, fall of France. Yeah. Um, and you know, Rebecca, I know that you uh, have been at the receiving end of some um, not such nice language about um, about yourself because of your position on uh, Elizabeth Warren and her represent- her presentation of her uh, identity. So I just want to know. I know that right now the focus is on you know defeating Trump and is on focusing on progressive politics. But I just want to know if you had anything to say about how you feel about the kind of weaponization of that narrative. Yeah, you know, and and I think that, like, the Internet is 
a place that, and I think particularly Twitter is a place yeah. that lends itself to um, that kind of toxicity. And like, there's there's no reason for online harassment, and it undermines sure. the movement of whether course. or not you're making fun of a woman for like dancing on Saturday Night Live or like you know right. going after or you know making fun of young voters for being really concerned about climate change. Yeah. Like those right. are not the things that we need to be doing within the Democratic Party right now if we want to beat Trump in November. Um, and I will say, like, you know, I've had um, I've had a lot of Warren supporters on Twitter, Facebook messages, over email. Like, I I think all of the Native leaders who have spoken up about the damage of her that her false claims have done have received that backlash. Um, and I've also had Warren supporters that have helped amplify that message, sure. that have reached yep. out to me, that have I know that have personally brought it up to the campaign. Right. So yeah, I think yeah. that the the worst of the online behavior doesn't represent sort of like everybody in that camp. Right? Exactly. Right. Um, yeah. But I, it absolutely existed and it absolutely happened. And it was an experience that, you know, a lot of Native women had um, when we were trying to really shift the narrative that wasn't even really about Warren, but was just more based in Cherokee sovereignty and people understanding why the behavior of white people who have no ties to our tribe claiming to be Cherokee, it's problematic, you know, it's really just about that public education. Um, But yeah, unfortunately, I think uh, the way the internet works and Twitter works. (laughs) Right. Totally. Yeah. Um, a lot of those conversations do become toxic. Yeah. And if people want to condemn that, like you are doing, like across the board, that's great. But what is trash is pretending that one person, one person has yeah, a monopoly yeah. on it. Yeah. yeah. Well, and also just like fact free. Like, if oh, yeah, someone totally was like, free, yeah. it's definitely the quote unquote Bernie bros, and here's my like regression analysis, that would be one thing. But, you know, right. you've got people saying, but why is it an overwhelmingly right. number? I mean, yeah. But where's the evidence of, any any, of yeah. this? And I think the fact that, I mean, again, I think it's just, a, it's another function. And I think this is a big subtext of this campaign of the way power really works in our society. That, you know, when you're taking the position of the the powerful, you can make many more just totally fact-free claims, have them amplified by any you know major media network, and given a certain sense of and sheen of legitimacy. Then, if it's on CNN, MSNBC, Fox, NPR, whatever, 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 obviously it gives it a whole new level of legitimacy, uh, even if it's a completely false, completely bogus claim that people are making. And I think that again and again and again, whether it's the the pay, how you're going to pay for it question in the debates, whether it's the you know level of diversity in the the Sanders campaign, whether it's, you know, even, I mean, I know the turnout issue has been parsed a million different ways, but even just some of like the facts on the ground about that, uh, as long as you're taking the side of the powerful, you can really, I mean, Joe Biden, I I hate to just say this, but he claimed and now has admitted he lied about being arrested in South Africa trying to free Nelson Mandela. I mean, can you imagine if Bernie Sanders was just like, you know what, I was in South Africa uh, with like the United Democratic Movement leading township shutdowns in 83 and it was just fake what people would say. I I mean, it just, I think that interrogating some of the way power really works in our society is important here. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, I think one of the things that's happening in this election is that a lot of people are making decisions to, I think, um, based on fear, which Mm -hmm. is real and is Mm -hmm. not something that I have, um, like judgments for. Like, I think there are a lot of people who have a lot on the line with the idea of Trump getting it out of another four years. I think our entire democracy is on the line. And so I don't agree with the analysis 
um, that Joe Biden is the safe candidate. I think that Biden is a, has yeah. a candidate that has a lot of weaknesses. Yeah, and they're not even um, all out there yet. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But and I think too that if if people who support Biden are serious, and if as Democrats we're all serious about beating Trump in November, that we need to act quickly. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> to make sure that that's still possible. I mean, even just. You know, I saw somebody um, tweet out, um, I'm trying to remember what to say, I, think, I believe it was Minnesota, about how amazing it was that Biden won Minnesota without staff on the ground. And I'm like, we should be panicking right. that the Democratic frontrunner doesn't have campaign staff in every state. Right. Like, we can't show up in August and expect to have the relationships, the infrastructure, the call, you know, the sign-in sheets, the numbers to call, the doors to knock on, to get people to the polls on November. Like, that is thing, That is something that takes time to build, yeah. you know? And, um, and so I think that, um, yeah, I think that it's a moment for us. And, and I would say, too, you know, it's like the, the coalition of people that we need in this country to defeat Trump we can't do it without young voters. We can't do it without the Latinx vote. We can't do it without the Native vote. Um, you know, we can't do it without progressives. And the coalition that we need to pass Medicare for all, to pass the Green New Deal, to pass the living wage, we can't do without the African-American vote. We can't do without Southern states. We can't do without, and, you know, some of us on the further on the left don't like to say this we can't do it without moderate democrats yeah. you know like we didn't win back the house in 2018 without moderates you know and there's no equation to beating trump if you look at the math that doesn't include all those people and right. so that's where we really have to start thinking about and i think one of the things where i have a lot of hope is that even in states where biden won where you look at the exit polls a large number of people agree with the policies, right? Right. And they agree with the ideas. I think we're in an election cycle where people are making a lot of decisions. And with I'm saying this without judging folks, where a lot of people are trying are so focused on electability, it is hard to have a primary that's just about ideas, right? right? Um, and a, a valid, valid decision-making process. Um, but I think what it says broader for the movement is that there is power there um, in the popularity and the growing popularity of those ideas, you know, to make them real. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a good point. And I, and I think, you know, so there's a there's a historical reality to the, the electability piece that I think people should consider. I mean, certainly before this, but consistently since 1984, let's say uh, – Every election, it's like vote for the lesser evil right. in terms of the Democratic candidate. And the political spectrum has only moved further to the right, mm -hmm. even when right. Democrats are elected. So, I, I yeah. mean, I think there's this, there's certainly like a logical fallacy, too, in how we conceive of of what electability is. And I, I think your point is so dead, uh, so right on, uh, Rebecca, in terms of what we're seeing in the exit polling, because I think a lot of people I think actually one of the most useless statistics in politics is people's self-identification as a liberal, moderate mm. or conservative. Yeah. I think many people <laughs> who say they're a moderate basically mean that they are 
reasonable, right? Like, right. I think that's why you can have sex. 60% of people in Mississippi right. say they're for, you know, government health insurance, but almost all of them vote for Joe totally. Biden. Is I think people think, well, like, well, this is what I think. I think I'm reasonable, and thus I think I'm moderate. Like, I don't think I'm extreme. And I think sometimes we allow the way that sort of political scientists have poll tested the way to ask people how they conceive of themselves politically and how they relate to issues are in and of themselves problematic. And I think often distort the conversation as much as they really reveal uh, sort of the who's who and what's what of of what's out there. But it, it's very difficult to me to just look at the facts on the ground and say, yes, the body of Democrats is moving to the right, not to the left, right. even though there's complete inertia in sort of the, the leadership of the party and the adjacent media uh, trying to drift off it. Well, thank you so much, Rebecca. Um, and where can people find you? Yeah, uh, people can follow me on Twitter. I'm just at my name, at Rebecca Nagel. Great. Thank you so much, Rebecca Nagel. Don't forget to rate and review the Katie Halper Show on iTunes and become Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. You'll be able to hear an interview I do with current affairs writer Vanessa B, where she explains and reads a sternly worded letter to Warren supporters. Also, Jack Allison, co-host of the podcast, The Struggle Session, talks about an MSNBC reporter trying to take away his phone because he asks her about why the network didn't cover the neo-Nazi showing up to a Bernie Sanders rally. The Katie Halper Show is edited by Ted Reedy. Our theme song is by the band Cordova. 